Yo, Chuck, run a power move on him. May I say something to you to give you a true knowledge of yourself and life so that the same glory and success attained by other men who understand themselves may be yours? Man in the full knowledge of himself is a superb and supreme creature of creation. When man becomes possessor of the knowledge of himself, he becomes master of his environment, the captain of his own ship, the director of his own destiny, the accomplisher of his own ends. Peace, everybody. We're back. This is the Brooklyn Combine. We are at the Brooklyn Combine virtually, and we've got some great guests, you know, uh, doing a good job to keep their promise to come back now that they're, you know, super Hollywood. You know, they're doing it, you know, at a very grandioso level. But now we got a couple of good, good guests on. I'll let them introduce themselves, and then we're going to get a bit into their project and, you know, discuss some details. So who do we have with us today? This is Muta Ali, uh, film director. Uh, latest film is Yusuf Hawkins' Storm Over Brooklyn. Who else we got? This is Victoria DeCosta, producer, Yusuf Hawkins' Storm Over Brooklyn. All right, and who we got from the combine on? Um, we got Phil and uh, my intern, Kenny. He's uh, <laughs> currently tied up. He gave you coffee? Yeah, he had to grab, grab, run and grab me some coffee, but we're going to let him slide for now. We'll, he'll jump in a little later. All right, well, that's all good. So let's... let's I just let's... realized who y'all were talking about. Y'all called. <laughs> <laughs> y'all called. Nah, so, so Kenny's going to definitely jump in and, and defend itself in, mm. you know, as typical fashion. But <laughs> we, we do, we do want to jump, jump right into things. We know everybody's tight on time. But the film is in the world right now, Storm Over Brooklyn. And for those who... Who haven't seen it, you you absolutely must. But I imagine, you know, nearly everybody listening to our podcast is certainly was checked in and we did our best to, you know, raise awareness to the film. What is what has the reception been like, brothers? Like, you know, how's the world been receiving? I've been seeing a lot of good things. I've been seeing a lot of good stuff on on social media. I think the community is receiving it well. That they're, they're they're happy that the story's being told, happy Yusuf is not being forgotten. Um I think one of the things that strikes me is that people are understanding the, the amount of pain that Yusuf's family went through and having a lot of compassion for them and for Ms. Hawkins. And I mean, I've seen, I've seen almost nothing but positive responses, at least from the people who I, I care about, you know? So it's like <laughs> a wonderful thing, you know? Nah, it's, it's, it's yeah. interesting. I'm, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Victorious. Well, I'll say hundred percent uh, positive responses, you know, pretty much, um, Interesting is that most people are watching it two to three times minimum. You know, this is the reports like they don't watch it back to back. You know, they'll say I'm gonna watch it again tomorrow. You know, uh, people are saying, well, you know, I had to stop crying, so I had to, I had to turn it off and I had to turn it back on. So it's uh, it's very appreciative because documentaries don't usually get you know spins like that where people are watching it multiple times. You know, so. No, absolutely. I mean, like, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was nothing. It's a hit. That's all. It's, it's a hit. No, it, no, it, it is. And and again, like we were saying, you know, when we did the the first interview, we were talking about it. You know, pre-release, we had got a chance to screen it. We were certainly like, this is going to have a different a different kind of resonance in the community. To a large degree, obviously, the the quality 
of the of the storytelling, the quality of the narrative, t hats off, but also the time that we're in. Like it's a very timely piece and it becomes something that in this moment people can galvanize around that proves, you know, for those who need that proof, how this ties to the past. So, you know, I know you all were, you know, you all were at the memorial, was the memorial yesterday? Like uh, uh, kind of like vigil. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The vigil. So now, now that you know, so much has been released. It's in in some ways, I imagine it's opening up a lot of old wounds. You know, for a, a new generation that's learning a lot of this. For them, some part of it is academic. You know, and they need that. Some part of it is, you know, for them reinforcing where they are. But for a lot of the family and the people that are of a certain age, it's reopening a lot of those old wounds. I guess some of that is positive and negative. While you were at the vigil, you got a chance to spend some time with the family. Talk to us a bit about how the family's been receiving it and some of the, you know, really close members of Yusef's family. I guess I could go. Um, they, they've been appreciative. I think that it's a, I think it's a great gift when you can help somebody make sure that their life story gets told, you know, and when they, when you do it in a way that resonates with them, then I think that's kind of where the magic happens. And, and I feel like, Although the story is tragic, um, the family the family is very happy that that it's out there, and very happy that Yusuf's name is 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 in the in the in the zeitgeist or whatever you say right now, and and um, they're moved by it, you know. And I I think I thank them for for showing us that they appreciate it because you know it's it's hard to step in as as storytellers, and especially when it's a delicate subject matter the way it is, and to put creative uh, input into it and, and emphasize certain things and maybe leave certain things out. There's a lot of decisions that get made, you know, in the, in the filmmaking process. And at the end of the day, it still held true to how they, what their experience was. And, and I was relieved to, to feel that, to understand that, you know? No, for sure. I mean, I imagine to a large degree, like you talk about the storytelling part, you know, the, the, the important thing for everybody to keep in mind is you're not fabricating a story here. You're telling a real story. Like one of the, the poignant moments that comes to mind as you mentioned that, that dynamic of telling a story and how it all unfolds is I think about at an early part in the film where they were, I think everybody was sitting around and they were talking about coming from Blockbuster and you guys did a, a really, this really creative way of showing. They had mentioned, like they were watching Mississippi Burning, which was freaking crazy. It was like, yo, this, this, is, really, this is really what they were watching. And of course, you know, you, you pull it in and you get to see it. You get to see that visual. And for those who are aware of what Mississippi Burning is all about, the nature of the subject matter, to go from there to the actual events that occurred, now 2020 to what's going on today, the cyclical nature of it all is really wild. I would love to get some of the feedback from you all in terms of, you know, you, you produce a piece like this where you cover so much time there's so much space and time that's covered. And then, of course, you see a lot of these things going on today. Again, do you feel that sense of hopelessness with this piece? Do you feel like it simply gets lost in the zeitgeist? Or do you feel like it actually can become a tool to be useful for those who are trying to create change today? Oh, oh definitely. Never, 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 never hopeless. Um, always a tool. And I just want to point out that if you go to the HBO website, the Brooklyn Combine has designed a discussion guide, right? So we're always pushing that. And that right there is, I would say, the instruction manual on how to use the tool. And just like we did the vigil, we're working on the street co-naming. 
the film really is just part of like a multi-pronged attack, you know, on injustice. So there's an art piece, right? But there also is responsibility where we didn't just like sign off after exploiting the family, you know, as some filmmakers might do. You know, we are family, you know, we do get our hugs and everything. So, you know, very encouraged. Um, we have people who've never heard of Yusuf Hawkins before, of all ages, you know, of all backgrounds. There actually was uh, a young woman who had the idea after seeing the trailer to organize a march. And she's a resident of, uh, of Bensonhurst, which is Puerto Rican and Dominican. Ever heard of Yusef's sort of trailer? And she just was uh, so blown away. So I think I definitely find hope based upon the response you know, of this film. No, definitely. And we, we appreciate being a part of that hope and being a part of, you know, some of the practical solutions. So definitely thank you for mentioning that. For anybody else who, you know, if you are curious about, you know, we had mentioned on the, on the, the last interview that we were involved with the project from a developmental perspective in terms of helping to develop the curriculum afterwards so that individuals who are so inclined, students, educators, you know, individuals who are simply looking to add on, this, this guide that we've produced, we're hopeful that people will be able to use it to kind of pick apart and pick through the practical aspects. You know, we talk about for us, history is a lot. So we dig through it to find what's useful and move on. It's not, it's not something to sit and study. But I see we, we, we got Ken on, and I know Kenny definitely had some things that he could not get to with the initial interview because nobody had seen the film yet. Now that the film is out, we can certainly speak to some of those details as well as some things that's been happening as a result of the film being released. So, Kenny, feel free to, you know, to, to dive mean, in with some of that. I mean, I, I, for me, I think the film, <clears throat> it really touches on the, the pulse that is, is a part of America, which is um, the, the discrimination and racism that uh, our community has had to deal with and how institutionalized it is. But one of the most interesting things to me about the film is that when it came out, it was some buzz and then it came out and then you had all these questions asked about who were particular characters and, and where are these people now? And I was kind of, I was kind of shocked the, the other day when I, when a, a friend of mine had actually posted something on Twitter in which he was saying that a, a, a very well-known uh, radio personality uh, on Hot 97 was one of the defendants from the film. Um, the the uh, Pasquale, uh, I forget his last name, but he, he Rich, what is it? Um, Rauchi, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's Rauchi or Rauchi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Little um, Pat. Little Pat Little was Pat. his name. And, you know, he's a young man with the mustache, and you can see him making a statement, of a re video recorded statement. And now it's this kind of uproar that Hot 97 had employed a guy um, who was a part of this racial mob attack that resulted in this child's death and the backlash towards Hot 97 regarding it. Um, th is that something that you guys anticipated or saw on the horizon or did that just come out of left field? I mean, for me, it came out of left field, um, but, you know, you can never predict, you know, we're dealing with real life. Mm -hmm. And um, I did have, you know, we got a sense when we were producing and, and directing the film that uh, 
people in Bensonhurst didn't want to speak up mm-hmm. uh, for, for various reasons. Mm. And that was disappointing, you know? And, and when I hear about stuff like this, I think that, man, um, it's, it's, I'll, I'll take you on a little bit of a road here, but mm-hmm. you know, in the film, you see a lot of the counter protests, we call them, right? Mm-hmm. So the counter protesters were the ones yelling N-word and all this stuff like that, hoisting the watermelons, just mm-hmm. outright, just hatred, racist commentary. And I think about that, you know, those people are still alive. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the silence lines up with that counter protest uh, behavior. For example, if you have a silent protest, you have people out there with picket signs, you know, calling for justice and you just, you, you, you quiet, you just see them there, you, mm-hmm. you, you quiet. I think there's a generation of quiet counter protesters that some people fall into. And mm-hmm. for all these generations, they've quietly been saying, niggas go home, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and And because of their participation in that, dynamic they're vulnerable for being uh having their past get in their way of their future you know and it's <laughs> it's funny because on the first episode we we all had a conversation and we talked about how you know everybody wants to indulge in black culture or black what they perceive to be cool black masculinity but at the end of the day we are still alienated from uh social political and economic situations that would help us you know, really change our condition. Um, it, it was pretty interesting to me that a week or two after we had that conversation and the film comes out, that now we find out that an instrumental person at Hot 97, one of the corporations that is, the, is, a, is a, a, a filter or facilitator of so-called black culture, is one of the kids who was um, involved in this incident, who's now a grown man uh, going with his life. Um, and I, that- I beg your pardon, can, can, before you go, I, I do want to point out that he was 19 years old when yeah. he was arrested and 21 was sentenced. So I, I just want to put that out there that he was, you know, by all means, an adult, mm-hmm. able to vote, yeah, you're right. able to, you know, I just wanted to put that in there. Right. He, he right. wasn't, because, you know, sometimes they'd be like, oh, I was. I was 12, yeah. I was not, you know, he was 19, right. 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 Oh, yeah, right. now you up here and, with and, a freaking full mustache and beard. And, and Victoria's, yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right in pointing that out because also when you listen to the police and you watch the film, you get the sense that uh, Yousef's childhood was stolen from him and he was presumed to be a man while these were just right. good kids from the neighborhood. Um, right. But that right. was really interesting to me, but also... The, the, the mob stigma to it also, I think, probably has something to do with a lot of people speaking up or not speaking up, because when you got Gravano, now a lot of people would, you know, I just so happened, one of my closest friends and a friend of the Combine was, uh, was an attorney for Gravano at some point. Um, Gravano, even though he ultimately cooperated, like many mobsters and many criminals do anyway, um, he he was very instrumental in Fama eventually, I think, being uh, outed uh, to some degree. Did, did you guys really have um, any, anything further to say as regarding the, the mob element to, the, to this film? Uh, I'd like to say it was wild. Like it was wild <laughs> to, uh, to find it out, right? So with, with every little nugget of new information, we call each other up and it's like, yo, 
I just found out, you know, say Sammy the Bull, you know, and, and this stuff that is, was out there actually, uh, the, I think it was, might have been Newsday reported that he might have had something to, to do with actually not just giving up um, Joey Farmer because it was slowing down business, but there's a reporter that said that he might have been indirectly responsible with uh, you know, pumping the, the the younger guys. So, you know, a lot of these guys were, you know, what they might call wannabes, right? Mm-hmm. And and some parts of this neighborhood had people who were aspiring to be, you know, big, you know, bigger, you oh, know, bigger time. Made, and, made you, know, you know, I, I don't know if that stuff exists, you know, Kenneth, but, you know, they, they wanted, to, wanted to be, you know, major criminals, you know? <laughs> and um, so someone says like, yo, you know, you have... Uh, these things going on by the candy store, which was run by, you know, a gentleman named Sal the Squid, right? Mm-hmm. And this is where Gina Feliciano lived. And so you have all these things going on in, in that vicinity. Some would say that the fact that some of the the young men were going so hard might have been because of that element. And we have to, mm-hmm. uh, one thing that might not have made the film is that there were two, at least two different crews, right, that they came out that night. There's Keith Mondello and, and his crew. And you'll see in the film, he said, well, our, our hangout was the schoolyard, right? That's the schoolyard, guys. And then you have a couple of blocks down, you have, you know, Joey Fama and his friends from a, a different part of the neighborhood. You know, it's more commercial. You know, they're known to be, you know, more harder. It's on, you know, on 18th, like 18th versus 20th. So one person told to me, you know, and I don't know if this is true, because I don't live there. One person said that on 20th, they were considered to be weekend warriors, right? So now you had the guys from 18th and such showed up to hold down the store. And the other guys from the schoolyard were there to hold down Keith, right? And he just happened to get there at the same time. And there was no time to talk and confer. But we are told that when Joey and his guys came, people were wondering, well, why, why are these guys here? You know, and, and I would never try to defend a man who had to stay in court already, but, you know, Keith Mondello didn't make 30 phone calls, right? So there were there were a few things at play, and it's one of the reasons why it is, you know, the, the perfect storm, you know? What's so disgusting about that, though, is it's a couple of things that come to mind. One, obviously, the fact that regardless of their, their local divisions, one thing that can be a grand unifying factor is, oh, we got these niggas. So absolutely, yes. above all, we that is our enemy. Like, like that's that's one. Second, well, is I can go on and on, but second, I will mention back to this to this Patty guy. It's very interesting to me that to a large degree, what likely gave him carte blanche to navigate and move around in our communities after the fact was the fact that he's got this whole Italian mafioso thing about him that he likely was able to still leverage, and unfortunately. Because too often in our communities, for a whole broad range of reasons, we will celebrate these kind of actors. It absolutely creates a lane for this very type of character or that type of behavior to exist in our community, which again is so cyclical because it's exactly here for no other purpose than to be destructive to us. It's, it's telling that this man, this man engaged in this type of act, and still in America, there was a lane for him. 
There was, I just you, don't Yusuf, prob- Yusuf probably wouldn't have even gotten to a hot 97 had he lived. Period. You know, not just the lane. Like he so became, assuming that that would have been desirable. He, thing, he, but became, anyway. he became instrumental in, in, in what many would call the mecca of hip-hop city, New York City, and instrumental. Like, it's hard for me to fathom that this guy didn't often think about his past when dealing with, you know, the culture. Uh, I'm looking at a, a T-shirt of this man wearing a Brook. He's, he's got a shirt on that says Brooklyn while he's parading around in a music video exhibiting hmm. the behavior that he could typically equate to black and brown people. So, hmm. you know, in, in hmm. many ways, this should cause a moment of examination for us in our communities to make sure that we are not being too eager to jump and celebrate somebody else's inhumanity in an effort to give ourselves mm-hmm. value. Because so often that's what it is. These individuals, they're, they're, the behavior that is being embraced by celebrating them is only their inhumane behavior. I'm not saying anything about you know, these communities in general, but certainly there's an aspect that's barbarous and that's savage. And then that's what cats will celebrate. And then when one of these well, one of these individuals from this community will go and brutalize your people because you got such an affinity for them, you end up bringing them in only to find out later, oh man, this person was instrumental in murdering one of your own in such a public way and now you're going to fire. But even, Are you going to fire yourself for bringing them on board? But even now, you're going to fire, but let's be very clear. Does we're going to fire, does that imply that Okay, now it's okay to continue to support this Emmis or whoever owns Hot 97. It's okay now, even though we know these people don't have your best interest um, at hand. Is you know you can do it now because okay, we we got rid of him. Um, it's it's just you know it's really interesting. One of the things I wanted to talk about also is, I know Keith Mondello apparently tried to apologize to to uh, Yousef's father. Like, uh, could you give us some more insight about that? Or was it well received by, by Yusuf's dad? Or, or what was even Keith Mondello's motivation for that? Well, Yusuf's father did meet up with him uh, and Reverend Sharpton was with him. And this was after Keith served some time, his time. And um, I think, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't see any footage of, of Moses saying, I accept your apology. But I did see footage of him, you know, meeting up with, with Keith and meeting up with him and, and um, at least giving Keith a chance to speak his mind. But they closed the doors on, on the cameras. But I will say that the Hawkins family, you know, outside of, of Moses was not interested in, in hearing Keith's they weren't. apology. Yeah. Did, did did you guys get a sense of the, the 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 type of time that they did in jail? The defendants who actually did go to jail was it hard time? Was it difficult? Was there racial undertones while they were in? Um, did you get a sense of what that was like for them? I think it was just three people who actually did a considerable amount of time, mm-hmm. including including Farmer. And um, when it comes to John Vento, um, the time he served, it probably wouldn't have been served uh, if he had cooperated in the way that the attorneys, um, uh, prosecuting attorneys wanted him to. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but he got a considerable amount of time. And Mondello, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think he served 
eight years. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and Fama, he's been in there for, you know, 30, 30 plus years. But, but, but I do want to make a quick point, though, about Fama and to go and to and to wrap up that point about too often the, the fascination and fixation that we'll have with like mafia culture. And so much of that, of course, is American culture. Then black and brown people get wrapped up in it as a result. But to speak to their jail time, Fama, to, again, to show like the long history of that, you know, there's tons of reports about him getting up with Pop while he was locked up and then them becoming friends. <laughs> so one, yeah. one thing that, that Reverend Sharpton said to us, uh, he confirmed that and he said that one time he came to visit Tupac and uh, Joey Farmer was on the visiting floor at the same time and I guess you know, he, he saw Pac and Joey Farmer, you know, how, you know, shaking hands, whatever it is. And Sharpton apparently was like, yo, you know, do you know who that is? And um, he told him that he was the person that was in jail for Yusef's death. And apparently that was the end of their, um, of their relationship. And that, that's, that's, as per what Mr. Sharpton said. So, I mean, yeah, we, we don't know when, when Fama first told that story. I mean, yeah, it could have been the first day in, you know, but so it is true that Pac and Fama might've hung out but that was definitely, it wasn't an act of treason, you know, per se, of Tupac. It wasn't like he, um, from what our interviews, it wasn't like he um, just forgave him himself or he ignored the fact that this was the person involved with Yusef's murder. Yeah, he no, was absolutely. surprised. People, people lie, you know, people lie. People just downplay their their, uh, their role in certain things. I think that that's, might have been what, what had happened. Yeah, Reverend Sharpton, the way Reverend Sharpton described the story, he said Tupac was, like, very surprised when he found out. He's like, oh, that's that guy? He, he had no idea. He didn't know. Um, you know, what's another tidbit, a legal tidbit about this. Um, at the time, the lead prosecutor on the case was a, was a, 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 a black man, very well respected by the name of Bruce McIntyre. Uh, Bruce... Um, I believe Bruce died of a heart attack um, uh, going, preparing for a trial um, on a weekend, um, died. He was considered one of the giants in, in, in New York as far as criminal trial attorneys. He was in the Brooklyn DA's office. And from what I understand from talking to people close to me since the film has come out and I've talked to them, they informed me that Bruce actually quit the BA's office over this case because he said that he felt that the case was being sabotaged from within from the executives in the Brooklyn DA's office. Well, did he go that whole thing about um, acting in concert? Did he have an issue with that? Is that? I think I did. From what I gathered, I didn't. They didn't tell me the specifics, and obviously, I never spoke to Bruce about it. Um, he since passed. But Bruce was getting the feeling that because the judge on the case was a, a, a another black a black man was the judge on the case actually Steve Murphy right. and them were trying to actually get that judge recused simply because of that but mm -hmm. Bruce apparently was really upset because there was things being done from the office side that he felt was uh, okay, intended to sabotage he didn't say. Um, uh, the, the, the exact reasons, but I thought that was really interesting, 
you know, and I, and, and now I, as I know how these cases that involve race are prosecuted and covered in this city, it doesn't even surprise me that that would have taken place as well. Yeah, we interviewed Elizabeth Holtzman. It didn't make the cut, but I know some of the controversy was she came in after uh, Hines, right? Yes, and, she, yeah, and Hines beat her. So everyone kind of place is placing the blame on the approach of acting in concert. That and and you probably know how to explain it better than me. But they they were trying to argue that the whole group of thirty were acting together within this murder and some of the attorneys from what i understood thought that that wasn't that that was too loose of an approach yeah, I could, like that. yeah yeah well i could tell you how it would play out in my mind someone who's been trying cases since 1997 both prosecution and defense when you do that you raise the ante of of what you have to prove um it's a higher it's a harder job for a prosecutor for you to have to prove that part um and i'd imagine yeah. That is for a good defense attorney. That's almost built in reasonable doubt, you know. And I and I, I can imagine, I would not if I'm the prosecutor. I would not have. I understand why you may want to do that, but if you're looking to get convictions, I think that would have uh, put you in a, in a really really difficult uh, position to, to to get that done. Yeah, that see that makes sense because John DeSantis, the author of For the Color of His Skin, the book about you know useless murder, he 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 felt like I believe he felt like the uh, district attorneys, you know, they were just trying to posture politically, and I think that he thought that Miss Holtzman was trying to just you know go for that long that <laughs> go for the goal, and like it sounds really aggressive if I, I prosecute everybody with acting in concert at the expense of a weaker case is what is how I interpreted it. Yeah, because I'm not sure. I think, I, I want to say Charles Hines won the district attorney's seat in 90. So it, would, it was like, it might have been, a, the crime might have occurred under Holtzman, but ultimately it was prosecuted by Hines. Administration-wise. Okay. Administration gotcha, gotcha. No, it's, it's interesting, man. Like it, a lot, a lot of this makes me think of some of the questions as we were working, as we were working to develop the, the inquiries for the curriculum and trying to create a framework, a way to think about a lot of this. You know, we're looking at Dinkins coming into office. You're looking at Koch going out. You're looking at all of the other issues surrounding the dynamics of everything that was going on. And there were certain ways, perhaps, that we would phrase some of our questions that was a bit you know, uh, out of step, perhaps, with what HBO was willing to use on their platform. But obviously, we can raise some of those questions here. One, one such thing unrelated to what we're discussing here, though, was the issue of who was, who was the, 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 young, the young lady again? Gina. Gina Feliciano? That was her name? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, Gina, Gina Feliciano. She was, and, Puerto, she was of Puerto Rican and Italian descent, I think, too. Right. Right. Well, it was it was interesting. I didn't know I didn't know that. I didn't I didn't remember that from the film. But what was interesting is one of the questions that came up from from the combine was again this broader this broader discourse around women, in particular, women who are not of color, using black men in parts of their story for whatever tool that it may happen to be. It's not always something negative, maybe it's something desirable. They, you know, they want a stud or whatever the story is. 
But the fact that that's like a thing and everybody knows that that's a thing. It was interesting that that wasn't a part, but we weren't able to address that in that way that we wanted to in a curriculum guide. However, yeah. it's, mm. a very, it's a very important <laughs> subject. It's a very important topic. And to a large degree, it played such an enormous part in this whole dynamic. Yeah, I think that's, you know, you know, go ahead. The, um, I, I'm sorry. I'm just, on, on social media, people are bringing it up. I think that was, I didn't know that that was um, uh, something that was, was not allowed into the, into the piece, but I think that it, that is, is significant. And when I tell the story to some of my elders, they, they hone in on that part of it right away. They're like, you know, that, that woman was kind of exploiting people's prejudices about what a black person is and in in the evidence that i've read the police reports and everything she apparently according to witnesses was taunting these italian men yelling out her window about you know sexual things related to black people versus them and all sorts of things and so that stir that doesn't help you know that doesn't calm things down that does stir things well, up and playing playing off their like, presence. right that's an old american taboo um, yeah. many levels, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting because you've got two things going on here when we start talking about justice. You know, you've got what has to happen in the judicial realm, the legal realm, but then you have the social realm. And in the social realm, that's certainly such a big issue. So it was a bit frustrating that we couldn't get, deliver that in the fashion that, you know, it was intended. And it was some of the sisters, you know, spearheaded by, you know, our sister Chi. She, she really brought that up again. She's a woman. She's thinking about it. But, you know, you know that's, this, that's interesting. Not to, this is not to knock these corporations, uh, HBO or any, but, but huh. I, the experience for me is that no one, not no one, a lot of the institutions in this country does not, they do not want to tackle the issues of race. Um, they, not they, in any meaningful way. If they want to speak to it. Way. They, they'd rather dumb it down. But when you really start poking on the, the, the nerve center is really discouraging for some, but what really made me proud to have even participated and interviewed you guys is that you created a document, you documented something and you, you created a story and a narrative that was undeniable and that it, it, it made you deal with it. So even though, you know what, we gave you guys 14 points to talk about, uh, you were only comfortable with six or seven of them. We got it. You still got to talk about it, though. And you, and hundred percent. You know that was. You know, and I, 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 I'm gonna do a little part two of last time. If anyone has not saw the discussion guide, it is still dynamite. It's a dynamite discussion guide. I don't want anyone to look at it and be like, oh, yeah, that is missing. You know, it definitely is great. Um, and there's there's, there's two versions, right? We have the official. Mm -hmm. Right, and then we have the, the one that's on the HBO uh, website, but they're, they're they're both dynamite. Ones like you know freshman, sophomore, other ones like junior, senior. Um, but we, we do we do wish. I mean, some of these conversations don't need to be had at home though by yourself studying at home. You know, some of these some of these conversations are for town halls and, and things like this. Because one thing with the the Gina demo is that I think that what we're saying is that she is guilty of weaponizing you know, the, the fear of black men, right? She should guilty of that, 100%. Mm -hmm. For me Absolutely. personally, right, that, that's where we draw the line of Gina, because if not, then you, you begin to believe the narrative of the, the killers, 
Mm. Right. And then we start to believe what they what they said, that, that she actually was the aggressor or we got to then believe the media that, that they were dating. No, they were, they were never dating. Yeah. Um, no one said they were dating. It wasn't in any of the uh, the police interviews. Gina denied it. Keith denied it. So we do, do when we toss around Gina's name and knowing how much is uh, out there that that is disinformation. We need to just be very clear about you know what her crime was in, in this whole thing. Because as we said in in the film, uh, not what we didn't say, but as two black women said in the film in the archives, like she's not on trial. Right. Absolutely. Once we get get her for that for that weaponization, it's like, yeah, but these dudes lied about why they said there was a beef that night. The one thing that um I wanna say that wasn't in the film is that uh so Gina had a black boyfriend, right? And and he lived in Bentonhurst. He mm-hmm. lived on sixty fifth street, right? Name was Tiger, you know, so people people knew, knew him and a lot of the girls in the neighborhood had black boyfriends that lived in the in the neighborhood. So when we tell when they tell the narrative that, well, yeah, you know, it's very insular. If you're an outsider, you're an outsider. We we're not going to mess with you. They were like, yo, you can date who you want to date. Just keep that away from here. So that there was no no overt jealousy. There was no mistaking about who were Gina's boyfriends because people knew who they were. And the day before, there was as we saw Pat Raucci, our guy, right, um, Hot Nine said it was a small encounter where Gina and her friends passed by their crew and there were some glances, right? Um, so I'd be careful of what these guys told the cops. They're not going to say, hey, yeah, well, we, yeah, officers, niggas. You know, they, they, made up, they made up, you know, uh, a story, and I don't want that to be forgotten because it's going to be so hard to deconstruct uh, 30 years of what we thought from Dungle Fever and all that. We, you know, Absolutely. We want to get out of the, the whole Emmett Till. Like, the, it's, it's the one, like you say, Kenneth, like, it's like the one part of racism that everyone can understand. We can get with that. Oh, he whistled? Ah, we get that. Oh, dating an uh, Italian girl? Okay, we, we get that. Well, you know, they just really can't get past the fact that there's some black guys, black guys are not welcome in this neighborhood just because, period. And we even have black people asking us, are you sure that Troy didn't know Gina? Are you sure there was a car? Because people just can't get it out their head that it's not about the white woman. Yeah. yeah. You know? And we also want to get from the, we also, we certainly don't want to ever deal with that binary dynamic. In fact, we want to get away from mm-hmm. it, which is the whole point of trying to engage and rich discourse about it so that you can actually start to unpack a lot of this because that's the only way you're going to ever get to anything meaningful. You have to get away mm-hmm. from that. But you do have to speak to it because that is, in fact, right. often what's on the public's mind. So you need to go ahead and bring it out and then say, now, here's how we're going to unpack it. Because even with her, and this is not a condemnation of her, and I agree, we definitely draw that line only at that point. Hence the distinction between what's criminal versus what becomes socially aberrant, albeit accepted. Mm. Even when you have individuals that, shoot, first off, you had that in our own community. You have black folks dating black folks and still weaponizing them. So it's really more the it's really more to get at the heart of trying to enhance and increase that human dynamic. And that takes work. That takes observation, social engagement. That that takes a whole host of things. But more importantly, it takes some intellectual honesty. You know what I'm saying? So the sister in the film was spot on saying, look, Gina's not on trial. And certainly she's not. However, it is definitely something that needs to be dealt with, though, 
because right. these issues are a part of this larger problem. And we, and you know, and we're all wrapped up in this mess. But so, something Kenny said brought to mind people like choosing these sides. One of the funny, and not funny in a ha-ha sense, in an ironic sense, moments in the film was when you had people taking their side, right? So you got people screaming, Yousef, Yousef. And then of course you had, you know, the, the other people, other community. And at one point they were shouting, and Vincent Hurst shouting Central Park. Like they were asking, like, what about yeah. Central Park? That became like a rallying cry. Yeah. What in the world, like, you know, can y'all speak to like the, the madness of that, obviously in retrospect? Well, I was, you know, when I think about directing a story like this with all the complicated dynamics, um, and doing it in 90 minutes and also giving people, mm. giving people the opportunity to, I think for the first time, watch a film about something like this, where the family's emotional journey is put in a spotlight, like, like it always should have been, in my opinion, you know? So how do you tell a story about the family's experience when all of these complicated dynamics are flying around them? I think it took, took me first understanding it or us understanding it, and then also being able to take a step back. And then once, once that happened, you know, in the editing room, I was able to treat the story more like a poem, so to speak, whereas mm. there, there's, there's a lot packed in one little sentence, you know? So I felt that it was key to put that footage there, what about Central Park, because you see the comments online from some, some people today about Storm Over Brooklyn, they'll be like, what about Chicago? You know, and there's mm. always generationally this deflection that happens, and and it's it's often a deflection to something that actually, when you look at it, supports the truth, which is racism is 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 attacking black people. So, when we were talking earlier though about the film being a tool, and and maybe uh, I'm not sure how it was framed. I think one of the ways the t t film is a tool is it gives people the words, because sometimes we find ourselves stuck in conversations with friends or classmates or people who we consider our opposition and we don't know how to explain to them how dizzying this bizarre BS of, of I don't understand racism or why do you guys always call out racism? Why, why, why is it always about race? It's dizzying. It's a dizzying process to, to respond to somebody and explain to them, you know, it, it's happening here. The politicians don't address racism. It's, it's happening there. Like our families can't even grieve for, for our loss ones because are we, they have to be kind of upstreamed into the, the political racial discourse that our, our community needs to have and use as an example to stop additional hate crimes. It, there's so many dynamics. I mean, even talking about Gina and, and, and weaponizing the stereotypes about Black people, all that stuff is so complicated. And I think what's special about Storm Over Brooklyn is you can watch it and you can get evidence right there in, in a poetic fashion, if I might say that that will allow you to say, look, this is what, what we're going through. And this came happened in 89, but it's happening now. So shut up all of this talk about, oh, there's no racism here. All this talk about, oh, black people don't get attacked for no reason. They have to have done something. Like shut up all this talk. And I think that that's how Storm Over Brooklyn can be a tool. You know, that's one of the ways. And also another way, Muta, which you made me just think of when I was listening to you, um, it really rang home for me because all right, what, what happened to Yusef, this young, you know, the same age as my son now, 16. Um, this, this, you know, all this hope and dreams that, you know, had to be buried and, and lost his life violently. That grotesque um, act of racial violence and, and, and 
exercise of white nationalism or white supremacy or whatever you want to call it only happened because of the many microscopic examples that don't offend us that we are able to live with. And for example, the redlining that occurred to even create a community like Bensonhurst, mm -hmm. alienate a community like East New York. We don't get offended by that. We don't get offended by the uh, racial profiling by the police. We don't really get offended by the redlining and the voter oppression and all these other things that really uh, are the glue. They paved the way. They paved the way. the way for these grotesque examples to happen. And it's almost as though if you really study this film and you look at it, it's all there. Um, you don't, you know, I, I, I want to I compliment you while I disagree, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like we both, we all get upset about these things, mm -hmm. but sometimes we don't have the tools and the knowledge like, like attorneys like you have to, to understand what's happening and understand how to oppose the, the, the currents. You know, because when you talk about gerrymandering and redlining and all that stuff like that, it can hurt my feelings if I'm trying to buy a home and, and, and maybe this realtor is not allowing me to. But unless I get an understanding of how to fight back politically and who has done so already or what organizations I could get behind, and, and I'm not going to feel armed and I'm not going to feel in a position where I can actually make a difference. So it's kind of easy to just say, you know what, man, all right, fine, I'll just move on and and try something else. And then it just kind of, it's like things get swept under the rug because I feel it's much easier for our political leaders to tell us what's happening than it is for us in this democratic society to tell them what's happening and mm -hmm. how things should be. But I feel like black attorneys or attorneys who are, who are, who are um, I would just say simply doing the right thing um, are, are so helpful, I think, in that regard. Um, but, but I do feel like people do get upset about it, but we, we're so kind of a few steps away from even understanding how we could do, make a difference, you know, that it, no, it, and it, it is challenging and it is challenging. And you, you, you raise a great point when, when, when we look at that, it, the, the matter of, even when we talk about redlining, if we can imagine in ourselves that line, when you zoom up on the line, if it's drawn somewhere, it exists and it's and it's wide and it's blurry and it's not a, either this this side of it or that side of it as much as we would like. It's that blurring of the line. And in that space is where oftentimes we even still, yo, so much damage is still occurred and we often won't know how to deal with it. And a, a prime example from the film comes with the, the young guy. Well, he's the older guy, but I'm imagining him being a young kid, Russell Gibbons. When he was mm -hmm. a young person, and his parents were simply doing what this species has been doing since time immemorial, trying to improve its condition. They moved into a freaking community. They likely didn't even move that daggone far, perhaps, you know what I'm saying? But nevertheless, they moved. And in an effort to try to improve their conditions, they end up with their son in a very crazy scenario, right? Like he doesn't end up being murdered like Yusuf. However, he ends up with obviously profound psychological, psychological. trauma. Issues. But you know, before we He's gonna have to live with we're gonna have to take a, a music break. We didn't take many music breaks. We're gonna have to figure out how to do that. Uh Phil is over here shaking his head. But um <laughs> I wanna say I wanna say, look, we this is real meaningful stuff we're talking about. Get off of me, man. Yo, so damn, I forgot what I was gonna say, man. You're a real jerk, man. But what what I was talking about is that 
leadership, right? When we say, Mutada, go on what you were saying, you know, <clears throat> black leadership in our country of recent seems to be more beholden with not maybe apologizing, but getting other black people to be okay with the system that has been very, very harsh toward. Yo, I, I definitely want to um, speak to that. So let's 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 take a pause right, so and pick it, it pick it back up. We'll yeah. come back. Since you at doing these breaks, you gonna you get the music together, man. We'll be right back. We go in, we go in. My pants poster said, we going ultra, yeah, we going ultra black, I got a toast to that, we don't fold the crack, we going, occasion we rose to that, fuck on postal, we going ultra black, watching the global change, hopping the coldest range, hit boy on the beat, this shit poster slap, we going ultra black, we going, we going, Rhythm and blues, pop, rock, soul to jazz, till my toes attack. How I look being told, I'm not supposed to brag. Nobody fault, I tell the truth, I know what's facts. We ultra black, gray stone, skin tone, but multi that. Multiple colors, we come in all shades, mocha black. Except where I'm at and I fight me on it. Emotional stares like I might be wanted. Pitch black like the night, I'm ultra black. Said for the sun, reruns, jokes are black. Oh yes, oh yes, God bless success. We going ultra black, like the S is fast. Talk with a mask on, the freshest breath. African black soap, caress the flesh. Super fly to Mac, sitting fly in the lack. Take the boat on the water, history talks with my daughter. My son will be my resurrection. Constantly learning lessons. I never die, you get the message. I hope you be better than I. Life's precious, two stepping. Sometimes I'm over black, even my clothes are black. Cash money with the white tee and the soldier rag. We going ultra black, unapologetically black. The opposite of Doja Cat, Michael Black's in black. We going ultra black, I got a toast to that. We don't fold the crack. Occasion we rose to that, fuck on postal. We going ultra black, watching the global change, hopping the coldest range. Hit boy on the beat, this shit poster slap. We going ultra black. We going. We goin' ultra black, Raiders Oakland hat, I smoke to that Pre-rolls and yak, what's the results to that? See notes and bags, she knows I'm classy like I'm Billy D. Williams Go ultra black, Isaac Kennedy films, penitentiary too Black like out in the loop, black don't crack, it's like the fountain of youth The coach is black, like Iman, she beautiful, goin' ultra black To Africa, you say go back, I stay pro-black, my Amex black Black like cornrows, afros, black like cat, black ball from the Super Bowl. Holla notes, I can't go for that. Motown Museum, Detroit, I'm ultra black. Just for New York and all the map. No matter your race, to me, we all are black. We goin' ultra black, I got a toast to that. We don't fold the crack. We don't fold the crack. Occasion we rose to that, fuck on postal. We goin' ultra black, watching the global change, hopping the coldest range. Hip boy on the beat, this shit poster slap. We goin' ultra black. Black is beautiful. Black is beautiful. Nas, Nas. We we back. I wanna I wanna finish this point. 
before I start thinking about something else because there's so many thoughts about mm. this film. But black leadership of recent doesn't seem to be beholden to the real systemic issues or conditions that we as a people are dealing with, but more beholden to the political leadership of the Republican or Democratic Party. Um, the film made me think about that there, there were some political, there was some political leadership out there that seemed to be focused on blackness. Um, and it made me think about what is the legacy of that today or, or where does that live today? You know, um, we have political leaders, but it seems as though a lot of the political leadership is, is to not offend um, the American dream of whatever that may be. And well, because for one, many of, many of those individuals want that for themselves. But it, the, the, what was great about this film, and we mentioned it last time, was because this film uniquely covers such a giant swath of time, you actually get to see the rise of certain community activists, the rise and fall of certain politicians. You get to see and hear their analysis after the fact. So you, it's, it's a very rare opportunity to get a window into something like this over such a, a broad time span. But I, I think, and we, and we certainly want to hear you brothers take on it, but personally, one major issue that I think is problematic is the heavy reliance on politics. Individuals actually looking for the body politic to solve all of these daggone social problems. And therein lies a huge problem it becomes this, again, this binary either or, like either you go and vote so people can say, all right, go vote. I got this little sticker on me and all that. So I did my thing, let me move on. Or people saying, I ain't going to vote, it's nonsense. But the reality is you're going to have to do a whole lot more because voting or not voting ain't get you in this mess you in. No one thing got you in this. It was a whole bunch of mm -hmm. mess that got you in this. So and, you're going to have to do a whole lot to, to, to get out to, of it. To your point, Mally, I don't think voting serves its purpose. We understand what voting is, and, and I think most of us. But I think we, I don't think the issues that are within our community are, can be fixed through the electoral process. No, you're not going to legislate social change. And, and back to the film, you know, what, I mean, I, this, now this is less about the film, but more using the film as a pivot point. You know, what are y'all takes on a lot of the social change that you have seen as it relates to things that you know can be flat out proven by like, by way of the film? You can see some of the, the, the changes in, opinions, the changes in perspective, and obviously you all have lived through a lot of this, you know, to, to, to greater or lesser degrees. What are some of your takes on the changes that people are able to witness throughout the film and how it can be used today? I don't know. I, I know we talked about change in the, in the last <laughs> movie, and I don't see a lot of changes. Like my, well, my, same my, answer. Uh, <laughs> okay. okay. The same answer. Yeah, yeah uh, I know you. My, uh, uh, sure, I'll be. But my my therapist, he he, uh, he's an older black man. He says, uh, racism it evolves like a virus, right? And I was like, man, that's kind of deep because it kind of does, you know. Because as we evolve, you know, racism seems to catch up right with us. And I feel like the other way must be true too, like the antibodies or whatever must have to evolve also. But in terms of my takeaway from the film and today, I feel like what was effective was the marching, which. And then and that maybe that's not all, all the way true. What was effective was disrupting commerce in Bensonhurst, right? Mm. And, and causing noise in the media. 
And I think when you do both of those things, you get two things. You get the community to do something. If you disrupt the community enough, they're going to do something so that they can do what we all want to do, which is to be more comfortable. And, and in that case, yeah, it helped get get pharma uh, exposed or turned in. But you give political leaders who are looking at the situation the opportunity to be a hero is how I look at it. And that didn't happen in the film. But I think when we cause enough noise that these politicians who are really only interested in themselves staying in their role, once they see that, okay, there's enough noise over there for me to jump in and solve a problem. I can, I can get press for being the person who steps in and solves this problem. And so I think the dynamic between us as individuals who can cause noise and, and cause discomfort as much as we want to, we can do that just so we kind of give, give, give the political leaders sort of, look, here's a little alley-oop type thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't this, because if you don't, it's going to be a problem. You know, you have the opportunity to be a hero and, and listen to the people. And that might be idealist, but it's like, I don't think there's any other way to do it. I think what we were discussing a minute ago about how it's harder for us as citizens in a democracy to tell our leaders what we want because of all of the confusion and because of everything, all the processes are hard to really address head on. We're not all uh, accustomed to the legal and political uh, uh, jargon that there's a reason why Al Sharpton took such a center stage and, and had to cause disruption because he must have been filling a void. And I feel that the void he was filling was all of that pent up frustration that we all can have at some points, but we don't know how to vocalize. And his mere existence on such a prominent level, to me, is evidence that the void exists and no one else is taking care of the void. And by taking care of the void, I mean taking care of the people who are constantly victims of racism. It's, it's so, interesting that you say that point, because that, for me, like, and I think we talked about this a little bit in, in the first episode. Like, I, I grew up, um, I feel like I grew up with a lot of these, so these people who are celebrities now, or who are, who are, who are famous, who have a platform. And I never really, um, I consider myself uh, a black radical, even as a kid, I was. I never felt, um, I, I never was buying the Al Sharpton train. Right now, and that's for my and this this that's just my own personal space where I was going. But I do remember as I grew and I got older, what resonated with a lot of other people in the community who many who I loved and cared about and, and valued their opinion. Their their response was, well, you know, at least Al speaks up and says the things that other people won't, and mm -hmm. that makes me think about that void that you speak of. Um, what's interesting to me now is that it seems as though black, oh, black consciousness has been assaulted to such a degree that the community doesn't even seem receptive for that void anymore. Um, well, I, well, well, one thing, one, what, now go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Oh, no, so, uh, oh, uh, me or, or Kenny? Whoever. No, nah, but oh, yeah, Victoria, because I because I want to speak to the to the change. Uh, who thing. are these leaders? Who are these leaders y'all speak on? That's number one. And and, and what ages uh, they're, they're leading? Uh, I, I'm just totally lost. I, I don't know. I don't know. No, no, Victoria, to be to be very clear, 
I don't know. It ain't yeah. no leadership. It ain't no leadership. Like, okay, like, cool. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to put that out there, right? He's done. And and but, and I'll the, the one thing I prefer that. Well, you know, the one thing that, that, that I think that did change, or I know that did change is back then in, in these times, in, you know, in Yusuf's times, the movement was defined by the actions of a coalition of different organizations, right? And then the people who powered those those coalitions individually. So when you see that march, there's no such thing as an Al Sharpton-led march, right? You had National Action Network was there, NY was there, New Alliance Party was there, you know, Ultimatics was there, Bernard Mason was there, you know, Teddy Carson was there, and everyone came together for one common cause, and that was the movement, right? So now you have, let's say, like, I'm just going to say BLM is an organization, but now it's like people who may not have been politicized or people who may not have been around in a certain era would call the organization itself a, a movement. Right. And so then you have all of these other organizations that might be doing work on a higher, you know, or lower level, maybe the same level. But now they find themselves competing. Right. Then you get a little bit of backbiting of all these different categories. So one thing changes is the, the removal of the coalition. And um, one thing about uh, Al Sharpton, man, I'm going to have to admit this in public, man. So look, when I was uh, 16 or 17, I had volunteered, man, for the National Action Network. And uh, you know, we, we, we all grow, <laughs> my name is Victorious, and I'm a nanaholic. No, so what we did, it was just one day because I wasn't really with it. But what we did was we went to Staten Island to, uh, to Park Hill for a voter registration drive, right? And this is maybe 93, 94. And obviously, uh, Reverend Sharpton was already on a decline as far as public opinion, right? And I remember thinking, like, damn, this is something that no, no cameras are here. You know, 50 of us is out here. We know we're doing, you know, quote unquote, the work. But these are things that people don't know the, the National Action Network for. All they know is this one thing. And I also remember to dial it back when I was 12, um, already being aware of the Tawana Brawley, you know, debacle. And I remember with Yusef's march, Sharpton got stabbed. And Already at 12, you know, I'm not grown, but I understand things, right? And I was like, well, Dad, this guy got stabbed for this, right? So the Sharpton that we know now, and know a lot of us in the community, uh, they say, oh, he's a rat, or he's, you know, Uncle Tom, whatever they want to say, he's an ambulance chaser, whatever they want to say. He didn't start out like that, right? And I look at leaders like MLK and, you know, all, all of the leaders that we know, we know because they had a camera in their face. Right, was it? We we didn't like cracking no no uh, time capsule and find Malcolm. You know what I mean? Like they all had cameras in their face. They all they all had NBC in their face, and they was always there when something big happened. And they all they all let something slip through the cracks, right? Absolutely. So like in 60, 64 in July, when everyone's down in Mississippi, New York was burning, but everyone said, "Now nah, we going to Mississippi." Just like we said, "Now nah, we going to Ferguson." So um. I don't have my cape on for for Al, but um, I, I do want to say that I don't think that there are any uh, leaders. There are some great organizations out there, but if I, if I were to go outside and ask people, well, who is a black leadership for you? I don't, I can't even imagine who they might say. They might say, well, Obama. They they might say, I don't know if you want to throw a AOC. I, I don't know, but they're even politically. There's no one that we can really look at Absolutely. to say, you know. Well, listen, I, I think I'll, I, I'll speak briefly to that because I, I definitely want to get back to that point of change. But I say it often, you know what I mean? And, and I feel this concretely. Had Malcolm lived, 
had so many other individuals hung around in the same fashion that they were, they would have become mm. snitches, turncoats, sellouts, oh. so on and so forth, because there's beauty in martyrdom. You can always be right in martyrdom. And we can take mm. those moments from Malcolm's life and we can highlight what we like and ignore the rest. You know, we stand on the mm. shoulders of many of these individuals. So when we speak to it critically, we want to be very clear to not demonize or reduce people to their poor qualities. You know what I'm saying? We work, you know, Phil and I had the, the wonderful opportunity to work with Jesse. And I made it very clear, like, yo, I'm, this, this is an <laughs> honor. And listen, you have an extraordinary amount of, of reverence and respect for me because I may never, I may never, you, this man has likely done more than I will ever do. He's likely forgotten more than I may ever know about creating social change. So, you know, we don't, we don't want to play that game. But I think as it relates to leadership, the moment in time that we're in, because they are ebbs and flows in time, sometimes do not require for leadership. When we look over that long stretch of time, this is where we ended our discourse the last time. Well, as students of history, when we talk about time, we can use a lot of different ways to view it. You can look at it in a linear fashion, where you are here, this place is there, and it's very linear. You can look at it as a series of nodes that are interconnected. Or you can use a spherical model. That's a model that I like, where you, you have this sphere and you are somewhere in it. When you look at it any of these ways, though, you realize that when we talk about change, as a mathematician, you know change, that's the only constant. Now, your, your proximity to where to everything else that's going on is going to impact your sense of change. But I'm going to finish the change point, but we're going to change up the, the mood real quick and go to some music. Phil's going to take <laughs> us out. But then we're going to come back, finish the change point, and jump back to you, good brothers. Yeah, and I, I do want to make a quick point. I, I did, um, one of the things that the film did for me was kind of re, it, it, it kind of re-triggered, like, you know what, as wild as Reverend Al, like, it was always a visual for Reverend Al, you know, the big, the big um, blown out hair and the, the giant medallion necklace that, I, I don't know what's on that necklace, but, um, but it was always this <laughs> visual of this, this, you know, this heavyset brother, you know, kind of pushing himself to the forefront, but the one thing that you can't take away from that film and, and basically to, to, to piggyback on what you're saying, Victorious, is that, yo, it's very evident that without Reverend Al and without him amplifying this, um, this crime that happened, then it probably wouldn't have even gotten as far as it did. You know what I mean? So, so you know, with mm -hmm. that, we, we got to give it up to, but, to but, our but no, no, but oh, I, Listen, I, I want to make something clear, too. It's something you said, Victorious. Yo, most people don't know who all Maddox and C. Vernon Mason or Sonny Carson were and all these other people who were in, in some people's vision behind the scenes, but they weren't behind the scenes. Those people were out here active every day mm -hmm. doing all types of stuff. And I agree. I don't think we need a black messiah or martyr. Mm -hmm. to, we need ideology. We need ideology. Mm -hmm. And this film, when you study this film, it helps you figure out what is the ideology that we need to perhaps take on to make sure that this does not happen to every anyone's son ever again. Or um, what do we do to preserve our community where there will be consequences to be paid if this happens. There'll be consequences to be paid if you guys come in here and you throw all these condos up, you underfund, the schools for our young people and our young people end up in the street in a, in a journey that we know how it all ends. Like what is the ideology that we need to develop? 
um, to deal with that. And it's not a knock on anyone personally. I don't want to say that. I'm just speaking for myself as far as leadership is concerned. Um, I don't think we right. need a particular leader. Of and, that's, and, that's, and that's particularly why the point about change is so relevant. Because when we talk to a younger generation or any generation that's in this time who might not be the students of history that we are, it is easy for people mm -hmm. to feel like nothing is changing. They feel very nihilistic. And they feel as though, you know what, nothing is moving. But if, if you, even if you can't see it, knowledge can dictate to you that even though I don't see the sun anymore, if all of the movements of the planetary bodies take place the way that they normally do, I am going to see the sun again, provided I'm around. So change is constant. Now, we don't want to confuse change with evolution. A lot of times when people say change or nothing's changing, what they mean is nothing is improving. Well, that's flat on. It, a whole lot of times things ain't improving. Anyone who thinks that movement in some direction is necessarily progression is flawed. But change is constantly happening. Adaptation, exchange, transformation, which is why we must be constantly transforming and looking at, we should look at the past, but not only the recent past, we shouldn't only be looking at the 50s and 60s. We should be looking back as far as we can so we can take from the past that which is meaningful today. Things are changing. And in many ways, they're getting worse for black and brown people because people go away on this planet. You can look at, historically at mm. other groups. You can look at the, the making of Italians. Mosimo said, we've made Italy, now we must make Italians. You can look, but before Israel, when you had Jewish people looking for a homeland, looking all over the place. We can go, and we can go on and on. We can look all around the globe at numerous examples as people either emerge onto the world stage or, as in the case of Black people, are thrusted onto the world stage and they're looking for their place in that world, they have to understand that change is always happening so that they can prepare for the future. You know, I grew up growing a bunch of food in the garden. We had a big old garden, you know, as we all talk about, mm -hmm. like plenty of the other ones in the North. And you couldn't see what was going on under the ground, but you had to trust because of your knowledge that the elders were passing on to you that if you did these things, certain things would come up. Sometimes the harvest would come in and it wouldn't be that great. Sometimes it's a beautiful bounty, but either way, something's coming back and you got to adjust and you have to take what you can and do something with that. If, if too, many, too many generations get the idea that nothing is changing, like actually nothing mm -hmm. is changing, it will prevent them from acting and they will see change is happening. The climate is really changing. That mess is really heating up. You know, we got a chance to visit Alaska. A lot of what we saw, mm -hmm. 15 years from now will absolutely be gone. But somebody staring at it, they might've been like, ain't nothing changing. Man, let me go ahead and finish burning this coal. It's like, yeah, everything is changing, brother, sister. Everything is changing. And you gotta start getting involved to try to shape it to be the way that you want it to be. You know what I mean? We absolutely must do that. So no, are things improving <laughs> necessarily? Probably not. But, that, but we don't wanna confuse Things aren't improving with things aren't changing. There's a lot that has changed, a whole lot, and we have to be aware of it so that we can manipulate the time that we're in to our, to our desired outcomes, which in many ways is what this film, for me, gives a lot of people the opportunity to do. They can look over a huge span of time and see all of the types of changes that took place and how this system has readjusted kind of like balancing something, right? You balance something in your head, you start moving your body all over the place to keep it in place. This system will keep adjusting itself to keep certain people in certain positions, certain groups, but not even those individuals because 30 years, 40 years from now, 
black people, who knows, could find themselves in a desirable place in America. And then our brother south of the border, our sister south of the border, could be in a very undesirable position. You see what I'm saying? So this is the point that I'm making about if it looks like nothing is changing, what do you see remaining in place? And what is changing around it to keep it in place? You know, so that, that's more the nature of that. But, you know, I don't want to go I'm going to change my vote. Changing my vote to change. Yeah, it's changed. I changed, I changed my vote. So yeah, I'm... It's worthy of a debate, though. It's worthy of a debate. I think that that's you're you making some really great points, man. But then, but then, but then, uh, ideologies. Uh, um, uh, uh, Brother Ken, when you brought it up earlier, the ideologies stay the same, though. I think, and that that that's probably mm -hmm. probably what I'm harping on the ideologies. You know, sure, that, that for sure, still the same. for sure, for sure. And our and our and that and to Kenny's earlier point then we have to develop stronger ideologies in the same way, not so that, look, you don't want to live in a way where your action are always reactions to an enemy, right? You're, but the fact is white nationalism has an ideology and it's clear and it has been sustained and it's gotten stronger. Our position hasn't. I mean, our position has changed a lot over time. Initially, we know we came here as distinct peoples. So in many ways, we were seeking to get back to our individual distinctions. Then over time, some of us tried to say, well, how can I improve my lot here? And then over time, some of us sought a, a new form of nationalism. Now you fast forward, some of us seeks our place in the body politic. So I don't think that you need the whole of a people to share one big ideology, but what you do mm -hmm. need is enough of them to form your, to form your, your individuals that might be at the forefront of you know, whatever the heck you might have going on. If you look at if you look in the in, in the Jewish community, for example, certainly everybody was not Zionist. A whole whole bunch of cats wasn't, but they all benefit from Israel existing today. You can look at you can look at the you can look at almost any group. You can look at the Palestinian plight. There's any number of individuals at the Gaza Strip that would love to have healthier relations. Well, I don't want like I'm harping on that community. I can go to other parts of the world, but you get the point. We can look at Biafran. We can look at a lot of other struggles around the world as people sought to distinguish themselves from a larger national body, which is what we deal with here. Everybody's not going to be on board for that. But for those that are, you need some that do share an ideology because sometimes leadership might not be the call of, of the day, right? You, you, look at, you look at all of the Cuban revolution, even in that short revolution, every moment didn't require necessarily an individual, this vanguard little group, you know what I mean? Sometimes the ideology can just come so great that really the individuals who would have otherwise been killed off or something like that, they end up becoming slaves to the ideology because they can't get out of it. They almost become characters. So we, it's, a, it's a challenge. And we're in a, we're in a very difficult place, period. Anybody who studied mm. any history, we are in a very unique place as a people. They, I, I don't know of many examples where you had this massive quantity of human beings straight dropped into another part of the world and then kind of had to figure out how to become. And now we're trying to figure out, well, what does our future look like? What does our future look like? And I don't think we all have to agree on it, but maybe that shared ideology is that we all at least exist. You know what I'm saying? Maybe that becomes at least one overarching ideology that perhaps we can all share, that we need to make sure that we're all existing. Yo, I, what I want to say real quick, too, is I want you guys to basically tell us your, your projects. What do we got to look forward to? So I know you guys have new projects coming out. Um, again, thank you for even building with us and also 
Um, Muta, salute your family history, man. Like, uh, we never brought it up, but uh, your grandparents were, were um, foundations for me um, as, as a young man growing up. Ruby D, Ozzy Davis are just, you know, uh, very important people in our, in our journey. Um, and I just want to salute you uh, and, your, and your family for that. And, uh, Thank you, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, that's very important. I don't think I knew that. And uh, Victorious, I know you just not out here playing around. I know you, you're really out here. And that, that's important mm -hmm. to me, you know. Um, and I think I speak on behalf of my brothers in, in the Combine where that, that's something that's inspiring for us. Like, at the end of the day, we do live in a world where, you know, it, it, it's, it's a finite world in a lot of regards. Um, and you, you have this natural desire to want things to change in your lifetime, but that's not really practical or, or pragmatic. But while you're here, you got to do something. And you, and you guys are doing something that's really, really meaningful and powerful. So um, I, I just I didn't want to say that before I forgot. Thank you. Thank you. Respect. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks thanks a lot. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes I tell you, it's, it's only upon looking at your reflection that you can understand if you're doing a good job or not. And <laughs> I feel like you, you, having you as you as an individual and, and the Brooklyn Combine serve as sort of a mirror at times. It, it feels good. I, I like what you're saying. You see, I appreciate it. Nah. <laughs> we work, we're working hard. Nah, that make that means a lot, man. Because I'm gonna tell you, like, I, I for one, like, you know, trial work. A lot of people don't understand. It's, 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 um, it's cerebral. It's visceral. It, it, it's really heavy. It, it, it weighs on your soul a lot of times. Hmm. You leave a bit of yourself with every single case that you, you impact or that impacts you. And um, it's, a, it's a really wild journey, this seat that I have to this. And when you see other people doing powerful things and selfless things, and then you see the art that's being created, that's just, just really, you know, you're preserving history in a lot of regards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not, not Absolutely. Not, you're preserving history. No, for real, in every regard. And, 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 re and really quickly, last time on the last interview, we I did get to thank you, uh, Victorious, for the, for the for the dope film Finding Weldon, uh, digging, digging, digging for Weldon. for Weldon Irvine, right, right. Digging oh, for you Weldon thought? Irvine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was telling you, Kenny, nice. Kenny had uh, blessed me with the link, and and Musa, nice. obviously, you know, the, the your your film Life's Essentials with Ruby D and Ozzy Davis. You're obviously your, your freaking grandparents, incredible, and like absolutely incredible. We we were speaking off the call about it afterwards. My wife and I are getting ready to celebrate our 20th anniversary. So I think we're about to, we might do a theme. Phil gonna shoot it. We might be Ruby <laughs> Chi and Molly Davis. That might become our new. <laughs> nah, but, but we definitely, those are one of the couples that, you know, we, we at least are able to, to look to in, the, in, in a public domain that really stood the test of time. So we coming up on our big 20. So, you know, for us to be able to right. still have like that image um, to a large part, you know, now again, pieces that you're creating to kind of wrap it all up, it's, it's incredible because we got a window behind what we may have seen, you know, in the commercial landscape. We got to see a, a bit of a window into, into like, you know, their private spaces and all that. So mm -hmm. salute, man. Thank salute. So and thank both, both of y'all. Thank both of y'all, like Kenny said, for preserving this, this rich history that we need. Thank and, you, man. Uh, you know, I want to thank our consultant producer, Charles Darby, other producer, Javon Frank. I want to thank Lightbox, HBO, ABFF, 
we have a very large crew. And a lot of teachers have reached out to us mm -hmm. and wanted oh, yeah. to know, could they reach out to you guys as well? Because they wanted to show this film and to their students and use it as a, as a teaching guide as well. And so actually, um, I'm, I'm a trial advocacy professor, adjunct professor at Fordham Law School. The director of the trial advocacy program uh, reached out to me last week to have me send him the curriculum guide. And he's also, hmm. uh, they're, they're implementing, don't ask me how this was never done in the, to begin with, but in the trial advocacy program, they never really actually made it a point, made it a point to introduce race into trial advocacy. Hmm. And trials in America have everything to do with race. Even when you have all white parties, there's a racial hmm. component to it. Um, and they, uh, they want to use Yousef's story and storm. Almost sense with this call than I have. So. Oh, no, I think that would be wonderful, man. I, I love the fact that it's, it could serve in that way. Yeah. All of that sounds, sounds powerful to me. That sounds yeah. great. Yo, so whatever y'all need, brothers, we here. Um, and uh, again, thank you. Um, and you got me thinking, uh, and reevaluating a lot of stuff and, um, me personally, I'm I'm gonna um I'm gonna watch it again. I've watched it twice now. I'm gonna watch it a third time. <laughs> That's dope. No, absolutely. I, I've I've definitely watched several times, and it's about to be many <laughs> many <said>. times more. <laughs> Everybody says at least at least three times, and I appreciate that. You know, uh, Mutali is a, a great director. It's a pleasure uh, serving with him, uh, and a lot man. of the things that that was mentioned, you know, in this conversation by you guys, were things that we thought were cut out of the film, right? You know, but obviously they they did still spark thoughts. But even the redlining, like, you know, there, there's so many things that people weren't able to see, but it's good to know that he did his thing as far as uh, making sure that it was still felt and understood, you know? Oh, absolutely. And you know what? I'll put back now, I'll put on my freaking work hat, my creative director hat. Big shout to your motion design team. Like, I, in yeah. particular, I'm thinking about a lot of those transitions that I know were very, mm. very sort of difficult to pull off, both from a narrative standpoint and from a visual vocabulary mm. standpoint. Very, very, very well done. I mean, the, 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 the moving graphics to sort of take us through the time, dot. revisiting them, yeah, the, uh, a lot. I could go on and on, but strong, strong work, big, big hat tip off to your motion design team. I appreciate that, man, appreciate that. The, the, the drone stuff and, you know, I'm when Mutali came in, you know, talking about the dots, you know, blue and red dots, we weren't too sure what he was talking about. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, I right, do the dots. And I, ain't, I, I didn't know if it, you know, if it could even be done. But like, you know, when they got done, I was like, Dad, who, who did that? Because it's like, I, didn't, I, I could even see what was in his mind. But that team uh, obviously I did just... see and it's one of the things along with the drone footage that people always talk about, you know, that, that guy's eye view. So that, that definitely is um, good directing. So I, it's good to hear from people on and off of this call that besides the historical piece, it's just a good film as far as films go. This is oh, yes, yeah. The, technically, yeah technically a sound film. And just yes. a shout out, yes. it's, it's the String Theory. The String Theory is the name of the graphics the in, in Manhattan. So I went there and they, they, was, they had me sitting in there with them for, for days. They wanted to get it right and they, they did a great job. And they were really generous, uh, I think, especially because they understood the significance of the film. So I think that's how we got a lot of things to, we maximized a lot because people understood that this is important. So mm. shout out to, to String Theory.
No, definitely shout them out, man. A lot of good stuff. All right, y'all. So, look, how, how are we on time, Phil? Yeah, time master. Time master. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man, it's a beautiful, yo, it's a great convo, man. I, yeah, I, love you, man. I salute Mutali and Victorious. Everybody else on this call. Don't be that way, man. Don't, don't <laughs> be that way. Be this way. Be this other way, yeah. man. Oh, and spell his name right. U Y U S U F. No E's. Oh, yeah. I, I, saw, I saw it. He said, is everybody knows. Is that a thing? It's a thing. That's definitely it, it, a thing. I, I, I feel like it's weaponizing, you know, our names, you know, uh, or, or, excuse me, the, Misinterpretation because you can spell Stradivinsky, you can spell spell Casiasco, mm-hmm. Kachusko, you know, all you these wacky fashion designers. You no ease. Be committing all that mess to memory. Right. So you no, know, I, I just want to put that out there. You know what's crazy? That daggone in in the film you had. Well, I, I, I well yeah, I will go there real quick. But like in the film, I remember this little moment where y'all had the. Well, y'all, y'all didn't have it. Again, you, you're illustrating it, but you're illustrating what's really happening. So, you know, mm-hmm. like you had, like, all these Italian cats, and they're, like, screaming at these brothers and sisters, like, yo, stop selling crack. It's like, you're <laughs> out here with a freaking jumpsuit on trying to look like the Italian mafioso guy. Like, your entire persona screams drug dealer, and you're telling other mm-hmm. cats to stop selling drugs. Like, it's so wild. But, again, we get into this whole piece of media and popular culture, which is, again... And I meant that. Why that that young man was able to transition right into that, right into hot, because to a large degree, he's probably leveraging, you know how many, unfortunately, mad black and brown people, oh, look, it's my man, he's Italian. You know, he's Italian. You know, he's a shooter. He's, you know, whatever, all this silliness. Now, don't you know these cats got an MTV show where they're out here celebrating being in a mafia. It's like the children of the mafia or being in a mafia, some silly freaking MTV show. So this incestuous nature, this relationship with black people, pop culture, crime, we always end up on a negative side of it, but sadly, we're always lined up. We're like right there in line to, to play our part. It's, it's really wild. So you, you, can, you can go from this, what the, the time period that this film covers, obviously late 80s, all the way through till now, and you see how so many things have gotten so disastrously worse. We think about like the, the dominant music at that point in time, how much of it reflected the challenges that we were having in our community as we tried to address it versus now that radio, we well past radio at this point, but like, you know, whatever, Instagram, all these institutions can dominate what media comes from us and gets elevated. And when we look at it, it's like, yo, we are in... It's like, we don't want well, it's, it's trauma, man. <laughs> it's more it's, it's so much trauma. It's like, me personally, I don't like to get on the phone, especially with businesses. And when I have, like, a really good customer service experience, like, they just nice. They get my problem. They're going to fix it for me. They're going to ask me. Yo, I, I get weepy, bro. Like, I get like, oh, this person was actually mad cool. You know what I'm saying? Have a, have a good day. You know, Marge, whatever. You know, and when we find a cool-ass white boy, you, yeah. uh, you find a cool ass white boy and he True. cool and he real, he gonna fight. You know what I'm saying? He yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he cool, you know, all the hip hop, he regular. Mm. Yo, that that's like you, you know, he he not a master. We ain't gonna say every white white man is master. But it, it it comes from that like so much trauma we get from, from white men every day. It's like Absolutely. we find one, yeah, cook out. Yeah. <laughs> you cool, you 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 love me, you you're not gonna beat me, you respect me. You know what I'm saying? Like so it, it it's it's real deep. It's and real a part deep, of that is you know? our way as well. Part of that is our way. When I was a kid, I used to say all the time, 
I used to be like, man, if an alien comes to this planet, they need to come to North because, it, I, you, and, I re- and I didn't know it at the time, but it really was go to any ghetto USA because no matter mm. what, we are going to embrace people. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that as some nationalistic hype. I mean that mm-hmm. in actual fact, because as we contrast it with whiteness, maybe not mm. contrast it with Italianness or Englishness, is that the thing, you know, Irishness, mm-hmm. but whiteness, whiteness is unique on a world stage. It has defined itself in particular by being hyper-violent, eventually mm. hyper-capitalistic, so anti-human. So whiteness actually has defined itself by being inhumane and being barbarous and being vicious. So quite naturally, by contrast, people of color, I don't think that we did it subconsciously, but I think that this is the way that things have worked themselves out. We do instinctively exist in a, in a manner that's more humane, it's more willing, more accepting, looking for things to be fine, you know? And we've seen the bad side of it, sadly. You know, so I, and, I, and I don't say that to say that we should get away from that. I don't think we should ever do that. We should embrace our humanity. We can never be as barbarous. Right. We lose when we try to do that. When cats try to, yo, man, nigga, I'll bust my gun. You never bust your gun as much as these devils. Never, never. So stop it. All right, well, listen, thank you, brothers, so much for taking up, for, for giving us a little bit of your time. We, we certainly have a lot of things in the, in the works as it relates to, you know, trying to spread the curriculum. You know, obviously, we would love your involvement in as much as can be involved with and i know you all got your upcoming projects and things of that nature so again give you all the opportunity to sign off but thank you so much from the combine and again incredible film everybody and their mama go out and see it if your mama hey you say your mama your grandmama everybody you know what i'm saying let's let's get to it all Chub Rock jumps upon the scene with a lean and a pocket full of green. The green doesn't symbolize I made it on the top, but Robocop last year was a shock. The tone of the Popeye cut shook your butt. Kids are screaming, the media says what? Kind of music is this for you to dance to? The man with the plan and the band demands you. Leave the smack and the crack, throw the whack, throw the ball and the knock, keep a smile like that. Leave the knife and the gun in the store and ignore temptation sent by the nation. Racial game causes pain, needs a new rep. In your hearts and mind, never forget you set. Hawkins, and when you're walking, you know what you're squatting. Black on black, remember that it's important. Anyway, the shunless one, bring forth the fun. No hatred, the summer's almost done. No time for sleep. Jump in your Jeep and pump up the funky beat. A holy beaver goes off, yo, smash it, then trash it. You're too young to be plumped in a casket. Just get your boys and bring the noise and just swing it. Your party people, sing it. Can he come out and slam a jam? I'm his number one fan, yes I am. All these kids realize that I'm the man. Six foot three and maybe a quarter of an inch bigger than last year, but still a unique figure. Rob Springer, Doc, no dinky and hot dog. Know that I'm a man that was born to have a mic on. Next to me at all times, ready to kick a rhyme. That'll get me out of financial bind. That's why when it comes to fans, I'm never mean. Kids on St. James between Gates and Green. Always says hello, cause I'm a modest fellow. Never trying to play a superstar that's hollow. Cause if these kids don't go buy our records, we'll be has-beens. So we owe them to pull out your pen Sign an autograph, you might make a new friend To just get
get your boys to bring the noise and just swing it. Now party people in the house, sing it. Chub Rock jumps upon the scene with a lane and a hardcore dream. The dream wasn't crafted to be pornographic. Decency started from the crib plus kids. Don't need to hear all of that on a rap. The strength of my vibe plays Chubbs on the map because authority, seniority goes forth. Me. My staff gives autograph plus gives enough laughs. Reap my might, heed my sight. I definitely lead your right to treat me right. Peace. <laughs> 